Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Let's go ahead and read the first uh, five or six verses of Hebrews 10, but we'll zero in on verse number five. Hebrews 10, verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of things to come. In our Sunday school hour, we've been talking about the tabernacle as a picture, as a shadow of the real. The law was a shadow of good things to come, pointing to Christ. When Paul wrote the book of Galatians, he said that the law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. So the law, picturing Christ, a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, because Christ is the very image of the thing, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they have not, would not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers once purged, should have no more conscience of sin. But they had to come back year after year, day after day. But in those sacrifices, there was a remembrance again made of sins every year, especially on the Day of Atonement. The priest would go into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement to cover sins for himself, first of all, and his family, and then for the sins of the people. Verse 4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Only the blood of Christ that can take away sin. Now they did it as a picture looking forward to the coming Lord Jesus Christ. And when John, of course, the Baptist, saw the Lord Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Then verse number four. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering, and burnt offering uh, and offerings for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure in therein, which were offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. The whole argument of the book of Hebrews is that Christ is a better sacrifice than everything in the Old Testament. All of those Old Testament sacrifices. As we've been talking about the tabernacle in the Sunday school hour, we're getting to the place where we come to the outside of it and go in uh, through the brazen altar. And Christ, of course, became the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for sin. Verse number five again says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, that's his incarnation, he saith, sacrifice and offering, Thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. I think he's talking about those sacrifices and offerings through the Old Testament. There's something better than that. And that's the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to talk this morning about that last phrase, but a body hast thou prepared me. Why did God become flesh? 
God became flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did He become flesh? I want to answer that question with four reasons for the incarnation. Four reasons for the incarnation. And the first is to reveal God in the flesh. Back up with me to the first part of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number one. Hebrews chapter number one. It says, God who at sundry times... And in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So prior to the book of Hebrews and of course the New Testament, God used the Old Testament prophets to speak the word of God. Some of those prophets were speaking prophets. Some of them were speaking and writing prophets. And so we have the written revelation of those prophets in the Old Testament. So we have the uh, word of God coming by the prophets. But verse 2 says, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. So in the New Testament, we have the very person of Christ coming and God revealing Himself through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by, had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, we've been talking about this in the uh, study of the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat over top of it is a picture of the throne of God where Jesus is presently seated at the right hand of God. Notice it says in verse number three, it's talking about Christ, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. All those pictures in the Old Testament of Christ are just figures. Christ is the real. He is the very brightness of the glory of God. He is the express image of the person of God. God in the flesh. Emmanuel is the Old Testament name for it. God revealed in the flesh. And so we read there in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 7, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. The book, of course, is the Bible. So the Bible is written about the Lord Jesus Christ. I come. I come to do thy will, O God. And the will of God is the work of God. That is pictured by the uh, furniture of the tabernacle. So, a body hast thou prepared for me. God's invisible. So he had to reveal himself in bodily form so that we could see him. Now think with me. There are four ways to get a body. The first way is to be created by God like Adam was. Okay? You have to go to chapter one of the book of Genesis to find that, but God created Adam without the use of a man or a woman. He formed him from the dust of the ground. I'm not going to go back and read it, but it's there in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, and then it's repeated again in chapter 2 and verse number 7. That's creatively. God created the man. And the Hebrew word, of course, for that is bara, which means to create out of nothing. Now, he did use the, 
the, the ground there, but God creates. In the beginning, when he created, he created out of nothing. There was no Big Bang theory. I mean, you know, where did the Big Bang come from in the first place, you know? There's always got to be that first cause. And God is that first cause. Where did God come from? He was. Amen. Amen. In the beginning, God. You know, sometimes we ask, and I, I thought about this, and I keep pointing to the screen because the tabernacle we use for Sunday school, but it's, it's not there. But where does God begin in, in Exodus? At the throne of God. Okay? God doesn't begin with us and how we reach God. How do you reach the world? You begin with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you eventually get through the rest of the Bible and you get to the New Testament where that God became a man and God revealed himself. Now, we can also find in the book of Genesis that God formed the woman, Eve, from a bone that he took from Adam. That's Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. So God made a creature with a man But there was no woman. I call that formatively because he's forming the woman. Okay, creatively, formatively. And then how did you and I get a body? Normally, (laughs) normally. All humans are born of a man and a woman. We had a mother and a father normally. And the fourth way to get a body is miraculously. Christ was conceived of the Holy Spirit and became a man. So God used a woman, but there was no man. We call this the virgin birth of Christ. So God became a man in order to reveal himself in the flesh. We have a revelatory God, Hebrews chapter 1 there. A second reason for the incarnation was to defeat Satan. Let's go to Hebrews chapter number two and verse number 14, Hebrews 2, 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Christ took part of the same flesh and blood that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil. Christ became a man in order to destroy the work of the devil and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Christ's purpose was to wrest from Satan the power of death. In order to do that, Jesus had to die. And in order to die, he had to become I had to have a human body. Now, let me take a minute to contrast. If you can do this in your mind's eye or if you have a piece of paper, you can make a little chart. On one side, you can put Satan. On the other side, you can put Christ. What did Christ or what did uh, Satan say to Eve in the garden? Ye shall be as God. On Christ's side, He wasn't going to be as God. He was and he is God. Satan said to Eve, you shall be like the Most High. In fact, that's what he said of himself there in Ezekiel 
what is it, chapter 14? I will be like the Most High. What did Christ say? He was the Most High. Amen. I and the Father are one. In the garden, Satan questioned the word of God with Eve. He said, hath God said? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, it is written. Amen. Amen. He didn't question the word of God at all. Satan said in the garden, ye shall not die. What happened to Jesus? Jesus did die. He did die even though he had no sin because he took our sin upon him. And then in the garden, uh, Satan said, ye shall know good and evil. Well, the Lord took upon himself the sin of the whole world and he learned obedience. We'll talk about that here in a moment. So Satan brought sin into the world through a body, using the body of Eve. And you go back there to Genesis and see how he uses the eye gate and, and, and all of that, the senses. That's usually how Satan works. Uses our senses, get in, gets into our mind and gets our heart involved with it. She saw with her eye that the tree was good for food. She desired it with her heart. Okay? And of course, all the while, Satan is getting her to question the word of God. And that's how Satan works. Christ, however, brought victory over Satan by taking on a body and, of course, being crucified in the flesh for mankind. John chapter 12, verses 31 through 32 says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. So we have two reasons so far why Christ became a man. One, to reveal God, to reveal God in the flesh. Number two, to defeat Satan. He had to become a man in order to die, in order to get that victory over sin. Reason number three for the incarnation is to learn obedience. Go back with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And let's take a peek at verses 7 and 8. Hebrews 5, verse number 7. Now in this chapter, he's beginning to talk about the greatness of Christ's priesthood using Melchizedek from the Old Testament as an example. Actually, I think he mentions him earlier there in chapter 3 or 4, but he brings that up and then he'll bring it up again in chapter 7, Melchizedek. So that's who he's talking about here in verse number 7, chapter 5, verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, talking about Melchizedek, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And of course, he's relating this to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ is offering himself, and though he were a son, verse number 8, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now earlier in the chapter, uh, let's go ahead and take a peek back to a chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse, let's begin reading at verse 6. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, 
he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers of flame and fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So he's already deduced the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as superior to the angels. And he says something to the Son that he does not say to the angels. He says to the Son, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So that's the Son he's talking about here in chapter 5 and verse number 8. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. So at his incarnation, here's a theological point for you. At his, at his incarnation, the Lord did not become the Son of God. He was already the Son of God. Eternally the Son of God. He would just manifest in the flesh as the Son of God. All right? So, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it mentions here the days of his flesh in verse number seven, who in the days of his flesh, okay, that's a reference to the incarnation when Christ became flesh, when he became man. And then it says, in the middle of the verse, to, he was able to save him uh, from death. That's a reference to the resurrection. Okay, they go together, right? The gospel there in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 is the message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the death of Christ, you know, there are, there are liberals who say we're saved by the death of Christ. We're not saved by the death of Christ. You don't have any salvation without the resurrection of Christ. You need the resurrection. All right? So not only the days of his flesh referencing the, the incarnation, but to save him from death, a reference to the resurrection. Jesus learned, it says, we probably could understand that as experienced it, learned obedience through suffering. Look at that verse again, verse 8. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Do you know why God gives you things to suffer? He wants you to learn obedience. We learn obedience by the things that we suffer. Obedience is often expressed in the Bible with the concept of opened ears or even inclined ears, right? My question is, are you, am I, listening to God's message? Uh, Isaiah says this, The Lord God had opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. See the connection between the opened ears and the non-rebellion? Obedience. Oh, you know, you young people, 
your parents say, did you hear what I said? Yeah, we heard. Did we do? If we didn't do, we didn't hear. You get the concept? The Bible talks about opening ears and listening. We don't listen to God if we don't do what He says. We may come to church, we may hear what the Word of God says, we may read it in our devotions and read and understand what God says, but if we don't do what God says, we haven't learned obedience. We haven't followed through. We can't say that we are obedient children. We can't really say, I have heard thy word. Because hearing the word means I'm going to be a doer of the word. Isn't that what James said? Be not hearers only, but doers also. So obedience in the word of God is really expressed with our, um, uh, hearing in the word of God is really expressed with our obedience. Or the psalmist, Psalm 40 and verse number 6 says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Now God did desire a sacrifice. So you have to look at the context whenever that we read a verse like that in, in our Sunday school hour. Thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened, burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. What does God want? From Psalm 51, he wants a repentant heart. A contrite heart. You see, we can do the things. We can make the sacrifice, but if our heart isn't right, it's not really a true sacrifice. And I, you know, I think we can make a practical application. Okay, well, I heard what mom and dad said. Uh, I did what mom and dad said, but my heart wasn't right. Did I really obey? I really haven't learned obedience. I really haven't really heard what they said until I do it and do it with the right attitude. Right. That's God's way. So now Jesus never had a bad attitude. OK, he didn't. He never needed an attitude adjustment. <laughs> All right. He always had the right attitude about it, but he had to learn obedience. This verse says experience that. When Jesus became a man, the Bible declares that he made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. That's Philippians chapter one, verses six through eight. Made himself of no reputation. Here he left heaven's glory. But became a man. Now he's subject to all of the things of humanity. He gets hungry. He gets tired, sleepy. Um, there's the potential for irritability. Okay, he responds correctly to that. The, the uh, scribes and Pharisees are always irritating him about this, that, and the other thing. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. So what this means is, we say it this way theologically, he emptied himself of the use of his deity. He didn't cease becoming God. When he became a man... He didn't stop being God. He still could do all the things that God could do, but he humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of flesh, human flesh, and became a man. I think he became obedient unto death. What this meant was that he lost his human and his civil rights. 
I'm not sure we really have those in the first place. Do we? Do we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? What really do we deserve? Life? We're sinners, aren't we? What do we deserve? Not life, but death. That's what we really deserve. Do we have a human right to life? No, not really. Not theologically. Not in the eyes of God because we're sinners. We have contempt for God. We're at enmity with Him. And what we really deserve is death and hell. You don't really want justice. What you want is mercy. Amen? Because justice means you need to die. So when we talk about human rights and civil rights, I'm thinking about it in the terms of the world. He, he's, he's giving up those human rights and his civil rights. He doesn't fight. He's like a lamb before his, slaught, his slaughters. He's, he's, he doesn't cry out. You know, They come after us and, wait a minute, quit doing that. He was a lamb before his shears. Dumb. Didn't say a word. You and I react the other way, don't we? The Bible declares that he became sin for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 21. So here we have he who knew no sin. He didn't even have a sin nature. Okay? But he felt the full weight of sin in his body. That should be something we reflect on every time we observe the Lord's table. Here was the sinless, spotless Son of God taking upon Himself the sin, not just your sin, but the sin of the whole world all at once. I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus prayed and said, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But then He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I mean, you think about taking the sin of the whole world. Just think about taking somebody else's sin upon your life. Would you want to bear all the brunt of that sin? Would you want to bear all the responsibility and the results of the sin of that person? No, we wouldn't. Christ is bearing the sin of the whole world. He had no sin. But he's bearing your sin and my sin all at once in his body on the tree. So the Lord Jesus Christ became a man to reveal God in the flesh. He became a man to defeat Satan. Praise the Lord, Satan is a defeated foe. He became a man to learn obedience. And then a fourth reason for the incarnation was to die for sinners. In the Old Testament, <clears throat> death for sinners was procured by a sacrifice. We have that Old Testament sacrificial system that goes through the tabernacle and eventually the temple. An innocent animal shed its blood for a guilty sinner. Every Old Testament sacrifice was what we call an imperfect sacrifice. Let me take you on a tour here through the book of Hebrews, uh, basically chapter 9 and following, but chapter 9, verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present, 
in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could make, could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Couldn't purge your conscience of dead works. Sacrifices were good. It was God's way in the Old Testament. But you needed the blood of Jesus Christ to purge your sins from the, you purge your conscience from sins. Look at chapter 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience? The Old Testament sacrifices could not purge the conscience, but the blood of Christ could. Now, Satan will try to bring that up and say it doesn't work. <laughs> but you and I can say it's under the blood. It's covered by the blood of Jesus. Go back to chapter 7 and verse 11. Hebrews 7, 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of, of Aaron? We already mentioned that. He's talking about Melchizedek as a superior priest to the uh, Aaronic priesthood. And of course, the Lord Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. If you follow the life of Christ, he is not a, of the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. And so he is not, um, what's the word for it? Uh, uh, I'll use this in, in, think with me, okay. Qualified to be a Levitical priest because he's not of the tribe of Levi. But he's qualified to be a priest because he is of the order of Melchizedek. And that's the, what, why the writer of Hebrews is bringing that out to include the Melchizedek in this because he's not of the tribe of Levi. And then chapter 7 and verse number 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. I would say this, if you could keep the law, if you could keep the law, it's a big if, <laughs> you would be perfect, would you not? But we can't keep the law. We have all violated the law. Old Testament Israel violated the law. Every single Israelite violated the Old Testament law. You and I cannot keep the law. Even just take the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You say, well, I've never done that. Oh, yes, you have. God has many names. God has a name that he is the provider. Jehovah Jireh. Have you ever mistrusted God's provision? Well, yeah. Okay, you've taken the name of God in vain. He's the God that provided, but you didn't trust him that way. You said he was something else. You see, God's law is a perfect law. Nobody can keep that law. Hypothetically, if you could keep that law, you would be perfect. But no one can keep the law. So the writer says, for the law 
made nothing perfect because we're sinners. But bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. That better hope is the Lord Jesus. Christ was perfect. Sinless. He's the perfect picture of that tabernacle we've been studying in the Sunday school hour. He is the perfect representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I forget which verse we were looking at there just a little while ago where he is the express image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the very image of Christ. Okay? Not, not something like Christ, like God. He is God. Perfect. And then move over to chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 10, verse number 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of things, can never with these sacrifices which they offer year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. We needed something else. We needed Jesus. And then look at verse number 14. Chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So here we're talking about not the sacrifice of Christ. Through his one sacrifice, he perfected forever them that are sanctified. So the Old Testament sacrifices were temporary at best. The Day of Atonement was repeated every year. The sacrifices that the priests made daily were repeated every day. You came and you sinned, you brought another sacrifice. Christ, however, was the perfect sacrifice. He had a perfect birth. He had a perfect life. And he had a perfect death. In the Old Testament, men brought lambs to God. In the New Testament, God brought his lamb to man. Look at Hebrews 10 and verse number 18. Now, there, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. John chapter 1, verse number 29, of course, the, I think I referred to this in the Sunday school hour, the Lord, the John the Baptist, of course, came uh, upon the Lord Jesus Christ and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Notice that the complete work of Christ sanctified the sinner. I don't think we read verse 10, Hebrews 10, 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He had to have a body in order to make that sacrifice. Christ then sat down because his one offering perfected forever them that are sanctified. Let's keep reading there. Hebrews 10, 10 and then verse 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oft times the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. He's still seating on that throne, but he didn't have his feet propped up yet. Okay, He's waiting for the footstool. 
so his enemies become his footstool. And by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after these days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now there, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So Christ finished the work. I think that's why he sat down. His work was done. That's what I do when my work is done. Sometimes nowadays I sit down halfway through. But I'm not done yet. <laughs> but the Lord sat down because his work was over. So the Old Testament sin, uh, in the Old Testament, sins were never really remitted. The offering brought a remembrance of those things. And so they had to go back a year later and do it again. Remittance is a payment and the work of Christ for our sins could finally be remitted. Okay, so verse 18 again. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering. So now our sins are remitted. They are removed. The payment has been made in full. So the work of Christ was complete. The work of Christ was finished. Now he can offer perfect salvation. So why did Christ become a man? Four reasons. One, to reveal God to man. Two, to defeat Satan. Three, to learn obedience. And four, to die for sinners. Let's make a practical application. You and I don't have to become men. We're already men and women. Why are we men? Why are we people? What is our purpose for life? Same four reasons. Number one, we ought to reveal Christ to the world. That's why we have a body of flesh. To reveal Christ in that body to a world that has a body like ours. Number two, in that body we ought to defeat Satan. Through the power of Christ. Right? We don't put up our dukes, right? because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we have a body to use to defeat Satan. Satan wants to get that body and use it for his glory. So he does what he does to Eve, attacks us through all of the senses. There's a spiritual warfare. We ought to defeat Satan because he is a defeated foe, through the power of Christ. If you study that armor that's listed there in Hebrews or Ephesians chapter number 6, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Christ. That's how you defeat Satan. Number three, why do you have a human body? You should learn obedience by the things that you suffer. In your body, you are going to suffer. If you ain't suffering yet, hang in there. <laughs> It'll come. Learn obedience through the things that you suffer. Trust God 
when the trusting is difficult. Trust God in the dark when you don't see the light because he is the light. Trust him. Obey him. Do what is right, even though it looks like doing what's right is not going to work. Learn obedience by the things that you suffer. And then number four, why do you have a body? Because you ought to die. Now, you don't die for everybody else. Okay? You don't really die for yourself. Christ already died for you. But the practical application is, in our bodies, we should crucify the flesh How often? Daily. We ought to die to self and therefore exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. A body thou hast prepared me. Why? So I can reveal Christ. Why? So I can defeat Satan. Why? So I can learn obedience. And in Christ's case, so that I can die for sinners. Why do you have a body? Same reasons. Okay? You ought to reveal Christ to the world. You ought to defeat Satan through the power of Christ. You ought to learn obedience by the things that you suffer. And you ought to die to self daily and thereby exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you have a body and you are not using it for God's glory, what's your other option? Use it for your glory. Right. It might be because you're not born again, because you've never given that body. What does Romans 12, 1 and 2 say? I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. So if God's not using your body, number one, you're either not saved or you've never really presented your body as a believer. Once you are saved, if you're here without Christ, you need to be born again. Let me encourage you to present your body in not in sacrifice, but to the one who already sacrificed for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But for those of us who know Christ as Savior, let me encourage you to use your body to serve Christ. You have a body for a purpose, not for you. It's not my body. I can do what I want. It's God's body. Know ye not that you are bought with a price and ye are not your own? You belong to Christ. So use your body for His glory, for His honor. And the Lord will bless. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126541 Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.